So, uh, thank you, Tripp. You provided many ways, I feel like, the kind of theological, biblical foundation for then what you earlier applied for us, right? This is what unity is, as we stick together, serve together, and you gave us, Mark, some, you know, concrete examples of how to do How many of you guys keep your calendars on your iPhone? I don't try to play it off. You're taking a call. Hey, you don't... How, see, Blanker, this, it was like this. It was like this the whole time. How many of you guys have your calendars on your iPhone? Okay, get your, get your iPhones out. Let's get them out. I want you to look at your calendar. We're going to last week. Look at, your, look at your calendar for last week. I want, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I want you guys to look at your calendar for last week. Last week? Last week. This week. What, what day is this? Friday? No, this past week. Sure. But because you're traveling, I thought maybe mess it up. Give me some illustrations of how you guys discipled, maybe you see in your calendar, of how you did your own one-on-one discipling with others. I don't do one-on-one discipling, but... One-on-three. Just saying. Jesus never did one-on-one. One-on-two-three. Because I'd be like Jesus, you know. But anyway. Thank you. Good night. Anyway. (laughs) What if you just remember it without looking at your phone? You guys can do that. Nice. You two can do that. But I, I just, my point is I want to be concrete here. I want to feel nitty-gritty. Like Tuesday morning, 6 a.m., Starbucks, I met with John Joseph, Philip Lehman, and Bill Barons. Nice. And we went around, and each of us for 20 minutes gave the headlines on one another's lives, and then we followed up with questions. So you said you were struggling with, you know, your temper a little bit. Can you unpack that for us? What's behind that? 6 a.m., Starbucks. That's something I'm involved in. I'd like to hear some testimonies from you guys of what your calendar looks like in the things that we've been talking about. One-on-one, one-on-three, two. Three to five, yeah. Three to five. Okay, I'll start. My, 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 my schedule is very intentional uh, with discipling. I do three groups a week. Um, the, the, the main group I do is my staff. I'm a new pastor in a church of a year. And um, I am emulating for them what I'm going to expect from them later. So I'm modeling for them over the last 15 months. So Monday at noon, I meet with an older group of guys. Kind of the leaders of our church would be like the elders in a sense of our church. And we've been meeting since last October. Uh, So we meet for an hour to an hour and a half. Uh, On Tuesday, I meet with my staff, disciple those guys uh, in that group. 11 o'clock to about 12, 12, 10, we go to lunch together. And then I have a discipleship group. Time, time, time. Disciple them between 11 and 12. What are you doing? I, okay, I do five things in a discipleship group. Okay? Very intentional. Very simple, but very intentional. We always start. Now, this is a larger group, so this is not ideal. It would be better in a smaller group. But what I do in all the groups is I model with the Because what I introduce is what they'll reproduce. Okay? So, which is true, which is true. Okay, so we're, we're just appreciating your the, rhyming the ability. aphorisms. <laughs> That's how I think. The we called him over dinner. We said he was Mr. Aphorism. That's right. Thank you. <laughs> it takes six months to grow a mushroom, a lifetime to grow an oak. Like yeah, that sort of. I think I'm leaving now. No, so. no go ahead, brother. 
No, Robbie, go ahead. Okay, so here, here's, here's what I want to do. I want to model simplistically for them because I don't want them to think, man, you know, I'm, I'm a measly disciple. You guys are Paul or, or, or an apostle. So what I do is I always start with how the week was in prayer. Uh, kind of accountability. How, how did you love your wife? How did you yeah. serve? How did you reach out? Did you share your faith this week? Did you have an opportunity in gospel conversation? Uh, so always with prayer. Secondly, we always do scripture memory. Uh, that is the most overlooked and looked over spiritual discipline. So in my staff meeting, I took them through the book of Ephesians. Uh, when I first started meeting with them, they were like, Ephesians, which what verse? I said, we're going to start with chapter one. And they said, no, what verse? And I said, all of it. And then chapter two. And I learned this from Platt. David Platt and I did this years ago. Uh, memorize the scripture was something I couldn't do. When I started memorizing with David, I gave him like a 10-minute dissertation on the effects of drugs and alcohol on the mind. I said, David, I can't memorize scripture. And he sat there and shook his head. And he said, I know. We're going to memorize Romans 1. And then Romans 2. And then Romans 8. And little did I know, he was memorizing Romans 1 through 9 at the time, right? Uh, so I did it with my staff. And I'm going to tell you, in the beginning, they bucked the system. And it was, man, this is tough. And, and why are we doing this? But, but about the middle of that chapter of Ephesians, um, a light bulb kind of changed. A, a switch went off in our team. And when we hit chapter 2, every week, one lucky contestant with, quote, all the way through, it was like they won the Super Bowl. The whole team is cheering mm, yeah. and hoorahing together. And so we memorize up to chapter 3 as a staff. That's, that's kind of where we are now. Uh, then we talk about what we journal for the week. Bible's the textbook. We never want to graduate from the Bible. Uh, then we'll read a book together. And then we'll pray. And that's it. I do that with all of my groups. It's kind of a simplistic thing. And then Wednesday night is just a group of younger guys. Tripp, any anecdotes briefly? Um, uh, There's a guy that I had been going through Ephesians with. uh, And this last week, I was trying to find him because he's been dodging me for about a month. And I'm a little concerned about him. So some of my discipleship with him this past week was trying to track him down and see uh, yeah. how he's doing, where he's at. Um, Did you get a hold of him? Uh, someone else got a hold of him, and uh, I'm trying to reconnect with him this week. Um, I had a, a few things like that. Um, sat down, me and my, my wife went to dinner with a family that's new in the church and has just joined the church uh, and really just had dinner, tried to get to know them better, uh, found ways that we could pray for them, kind of a new situation, and encourage them to use their, their home in a hospitable way. And uh, there were a few um, meetings I had this past week with people who are serving in specific areas that I'm over uh, and trying to um, help them think more carefully about the music, theology behind music. So sat with some people, walked through some of that stuff, and talked through ways that they can uh, serve faithfully. So it was a little bit of an unusual week for me, but that's what it looked like. Mark, brief anecdotes, 30 seconds or less. Uh, walked with a guy down to Sweetgreen for lunch on Wednesday. First time meeting with him, so I spent uh, almost all the time trying to get to know his own testimony, family background, where he's been, uh, and where, what he's hoping to do. The Beatty? Similar thing. I uh, met up with a couple of brothers on Monday, reading through J.D. Crowley and Anna Nacelli's book, Conscience, um, reading The Doctrine of the Knowledge of God with another brother, a um, couple of lunches, a couple of breakfasts. Um, mainly uh, the lunches and breakfasts were talking through particular kind of life issues with them. Um, and then the three or four brothers that I'm meeting with regularly, reading different things together and discussing. Danny? My situation is different than all of you because I don't pastor a church. I am a seminary president, so 
good or bad, right or wrong, what I try to do in terms of discipleship is really pour into the lives of men that I'm mentoring in the PhD program and the DMIN program. And I, at any particular time, I have too many, but I have somewhere between uh, 12 and 15 men that I'm supervising along the way. Uh, most of it is not local because they're scattered around, but we talk, we email, we stay in touch in that kind of a way. I'm guiding their reading, I'm guiding their dissertation, I'm guiding uh, and, and also giving counsel to what's going on in their local church. Um, it's not the same thing exactly, uh, but I do, I, I'm unusual in that I teach every semester, uh, even though I'm the seminary president, so I teach Bible interpretation every Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday at uh, 8.30 till 9.20. I have this semester about 35 students, and I try to engage them as personally as I can. They all know uh, that uh, they can call me at any time. I return all my own personal emails. They can make appointments with me, and I, it's kind of an ebb and flow. Some want very little attention. Some want more. Some have really few needs. Some have more, and I just simply try to make myself available to them. And then one other thing, and it's again on a larger scale, but I try to model when opportunities avail themselves uh, how I hope our students will go out and lead and shepherd their churches. So, for example, very painfully, uh, last week, one of our New Testament professors, and he's been very open about this, uh, his 18-year-old son committed suicide. It's just a heartbreaking tragedy. Um, I canceled all my, I was traveling, canceled all my speaking, came back as fast as I could. And then last Thursday, rather than having a normal chapel service, we canceled that and we had a chapel service of singing, prayer for the family, and had two or three of our men uh, get up and talk about, Sam Williams talked about, how do you deal with grief? Life involves grief. God gave us tear ducts for a reason. How do you process suicide? And then a couple of others got up and shared just different insights about how we as a family could work our way through. We, we were, again, Saturday, there were eight, 900 people here for the funeral service. Mm -hmm. And so tried to help them understand when something like this happens, there's nothing wrong with stopping the typical agenda mm -hmm. and dealing specifically with that issue when a member of the family mm -hmm is hurting so very, very badly. Now, again, that's not on a small scale, but I do think it is a form of discipleship, and I try yeah. to be sensitive to those type of things when they arise. Yeah. Let me do that right now. Let's pray for that family. I'll, lay, I'll lead. Father, we pray for this professor and his spouse and his three other children. We pray that even tonight, Lord, you would be a comfort to them. We thank you that Danny and other in this, this seminary community and the church as a whole, his church, have been a witness to you and have been a comfort. But Lord, we pray that you would continue the comfort. Do good from it, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you. Thank you, John. Mark, quick uh, anecdotes. Very this quickly. Um, we have a, a standing meeting on Tuesday with some guys. The preaching application team that I mentioned is, is uh, pretty intensive uh, discipleship flavor um, to it. This happened to be a week that I wasn't preaching, but we met anyways to talk about last week's sermon. 
and to both critique it, what went well, what didn't, and then take a step back. They've been doing this for six to eight weeks, talk about what they've learned about preaching, about the church, about exegesis and uh, hermeneutics, and, um, and just to hear what's, how they're processing and how the Lord's using it in their life. That was a wonderful uh, experience. And then I was at a speaking engagement out of town uh, last week, Thursday, and so I took a uh, pastoral resident with me and spent... 16 plus hours either traveling, talking, meeting other pastors for coffee, and basically we're traveling. It's, it's, it's a long, great discipleship conversation. Just a quick few kind of lightning round questions just to sort of get the size and shape of what your ministries are like in, in this way, okay? So just short answers. Um, how many guys would you say in a typical forget the week. How many guys would you say you are actively investing in? And I understand we have different schedules, different jobs. And you mean uh, that I'm regularly meeting with? Uh, regular to similarly regularly meeting with and praying for. Half a dozen, dozen. I mean, Jesus did three and then 12, right? So... Uh, I'll say probably right You want to be biblical. Probably around eight. Eight? Yeah, I'd say ten. Ten? Potential besides that. Thirty? Davidi? If I'm just, if I'm just talking members and, and not staff, not elders, a half a dozen to eight. Half a dozen? Regular. Probably ten to fifteen. Okay. Mark? About twelve. About twelve. Twelve? Do you use books? Like non-Bible books? Uh, yes. Uh, I'd rather, uh, it depends on the person. So if there's something very specific, then uh, we'll often do books. uh, And then often I meet with guys and I'm trying to help them understand for the first time how to study scripture. And so we're just going through a book of the Bible. That's most often. So more often the Bible than a book. Mm -hmm. Both, mainly the Bible, book to supplement. Depending on what the group is doing, specific areas of the group's life, you know, obviously. Sometimes I've got one guy right now reading B.B. Warfield's Inspiration and Authority of Scripture. We're talking about a chapter every time he finishes it. Okay. Mostly good books right now. Books? Lots of books. <laughs> yeah. No books. No books. Why not? Um, most of my conversations um, are either related to a particular topic in Scripture or I'm, we're talking about what's going on in their life, integrating scripture into it. So that's more organic. It's less, I don't have as many like formal every Tuesday at this particular date we're meeting, just yeah. integrating those conversations into other yeah. things that I'm already a part of. Can I say a word about how we do the PhD program here that shows how we do try to have a discipleship component? It's very quick. After they have done their main seminars, they have then here a year of mentoring. And that mentoring relationship and different professors do it differently. And I tell them, I, I can't spend as much personal one-on-one time with you in my office as some of the other guys can simply because of the nature of what I do in my schedule. Nevertheless, for that year, two semesters, they are in an intensive uh, interacting, mentoring, reading, preparing relationship with their major professor. Now, what I try to do is two things. One is I have them write a 30 to 35 page paper each semester that is hopefully gonna be related to their dissertation so that when they finish their comps and they get through all of that, they've got two chapters of their dissertation already in process, if not written, which then encourages them. I don't know if you guys know, 
but almost 50% of all persons who pursue the PhD finish their seminar work and then never do their dissertation and thus never graduate, which you make all that investment for naught. So I don't want that to happen, so I try to get them way down the road to encourage them in that regard. Then the other thing I do is I ask them, all right, where do you feel like you're deficient? Where are there areas in your particular area, and I do preaching as well as theology sometimes, what are some areas in the discipline of preaching that you feel like you're deficient? And then secondly, that we want to make sure we cover so that when you have your comprehensive exams, you are ready and you're going to do well in that. And it's been a really good model. Uh, I've been doing it now, goodness, for 13, 14 years, and uh, I've had really good success with that. And I've found that to be an effective way of building them, growing them. And one of the neat things for most of my students, it, that's not fair, a good number of my students, is they become church planners. It's pretty cool when a guy graduates with a Ph.D. who could stay in the South and immediately go into a church running five to seven hundred, maybe larger, and instead they choose to go plant in Boston, they choose to go plant in Washington, they choose to go plant in Detroit. I, I just, that blesses me beyond measure, and so I feel like I've had at least some pretty good investment in them and getting them ready for that assignment that they've taken on. So it's just a, I think a great way to do a PhD program. And again, we've seen a lot of success with it. Hmm. Praise God. You're standing back of the foyer on Sunday, uh, a brother in the church who you know reasonably well, but you don't, you've not spent a lot of time with him. Comes up to you and says, I, want, I heard your sermon. I want to be discipling more. What do I do? You got a minute with him in the back of the foyer. Let's set up a time to visit and sit down maybe over lunch or breakfast or maybe swing by the office one day. We'll carve out an hour. And let's talk about what something like that could look like. And then I can get a better feel for just how serious they are about it. And if they are, then we can begin to think in terms of what some things to read, some things to do, how much time we can interact with each other. They will fit schedules. That's what I would do. Did a, but I, and I would put that squarely in that person's kind of lap as a responsibility. Uh, I learned earlier on that there would be people who would ask you to disciple them and they expect you to chase them and coddle and baby them. And I said, no, actually, if you want the time, then you got to take responsibility for scheduling and, and I'll be available to you, oh. but I can't chase you along with, you know, however many other folks who kind of want to be chased that way. Now, I meant if they want to disciple others... Oh, they want to disciple others. And they're trying to figure out, how do I do this with others? Yeah, I think his answer, yeah, I heard a different question too, but well, I heard the, still applies. I, heard I answered heard. the question that Thabiti answered, yeah. but it answered your question. I, I would just ask them right then, do they have just a minute to sit down? We would sit down. I would just step out of the sort of line of people at the end. Uh-huh. We'd sit down. I would just say, do you know anybody else at this church? Who are two or three guys you spend the most time with? Or, you know, if it's a woman, you know, who are two or three of the women in the church you spend the most time with, tell me the circumstances, tell me about those relationships. And I would try to begin cultivating one or two of those relationships into that. Take what's already there and send it in a direction. That's where I would try to start. might not work. That's where I'd try to start. Yeah. Yeah, we, we have, it's a long, long answer, but we have a process we use uh, where they move from the worship gathering to the life group to the D group, three to five men with men, women with women. Uh, we never D group do for discipling group. D group for discipleship group, and in the D group forms out of the D, life group. D group just to save time. D group is discipleship. Well, know, it's, instead of calling it discipleship group, we're calling it D group. Yeah, D group. I coined that. 
phrase D group. So. But if you... Because that, that's the first letter in discipleship? Yeah, it's pretty... Yeah, it's, it's profound, as you can tell. It's just D group. Yeah. But if you think about how many times he's probably said that, he's probably saved hours of his life. I'm playing. I didn't coin that. I'm just <laughs> messing with him. He's messing with me, so I'm going to mess with him. Okay. I don't... I don't, know, I don't know if I can take a fight with Gaston. <laughs> Gaston. Oh, that's oh, man. Okay, the short answer is <laughs> we don't do D-harmony, if that's your answer, okay? Now, I'm not against E-harmony. My sister met her husband on E-harmony, but we don't do D-harmony, and here's, here's why. Because if discipleship harmony yeah it's a joke some of you get that later but anyway so here's what we don't do we don't do de-harmony meaning because the because the temptation is hey i want to i want to invest in people the temptation is well let me get you with mark and i'll hook you up with danny i'll hook you up with the beating the problem is if you get involved in that it's an administrative nightmare you don't think it's a big ministry now but it's exponential the the, gr- the groups grow exponentially because when god gets a hold of someone's heart and the natural response is the ministry came to them, so they're giving the ministry away. It doesn't seem like it's a big deal now, but down the road. So what we say is, what life group are you in? And so we're constantly pushing people back to these mixed gender groups where they're forging friendships, and that's the fishing pond whereby they're going to be in discipling relationships. So it's really just funneling people back into a, to a pathway, if you will. Do you do D-harmony? Do any of you guys do D-Harmony where you're trying to facilitate as he was saying? No, we don't. We have a, we have, what we do is we have a disciple maker guide that we have published online. And so when someone wants to disciple, we point them there and then they can figure out the pathway in light of that. Sometimes in particular situations. So not, you don't have a full-time staff member devoted that with spreadsheets? Yes. No, we don't. Organically. But sometimes organically. Yep. More like what I think you would describe. Mark, a mother comes to you and says, I heard what you said, Mark. I I, I can't say if I've repented, if I'm not discipling and evangelizing, but I got these little kids. I just feel so bad. I can't do what you're asking me to do." do. How does a mother with young kids do what we're talking about? She should understand that her main ministry in discipling is her husband and her kids. My wife was a stay-at-home mom, and she poured her life into four sons. It's the most comprehensive discipling you will ever do. Oh, my goodness. And, and the, the fringe benefit in our, in God's sovereign providence with us is all four of my sons are in ministry today, and people say, well, how'd that happen? And I will be the first to say, because they had a great godly mother who spent most of their lives, when they were, spent all their lives while they were at home, pouring her life into them. And so she's touched the world. She's a stay-at-home mom that people want to look down upon and lampoon. Well, I can't think of a greater investment. Yeah. Um, I was going to add to that. uh, I'd encourage people not to um, use unhelpful standards with what they decide faithfulness looks like in a particular season. So not to think if I'm not discipling five people like I was when I was single and in college, 
If I'm not discipling five people now, that must mean I'm not faithful to Jesus. That's not in the Bible. So I'd encourage people not to do that, to just think about what faithfulness looks like in the season you're in. And then sometimes it's helpful not to think we have to carve out some time other than the stuff that we're doing to then be able to disciple people. Sometimes it's helpful to bring people into your life with whatever it looks like. So they could be a mom at home with her kids who brings other women into the home and so that she may not be able to carve out some time to just go have coffee, but she can have her inside the home. She can watch her discipling her kids. They can talk about yeah. the word over that things. It's helpful to just bring people into our lives. Well, this is also where your message on Ephesians 4, brother, I think is helpful because your mind is that we're part of a team. So even in, in the discipling that we do, we're doing it in the context of our church. I'm not the only person they see or talk to. So I have a role to play in this person's life, but there are going to be other people that have a role to play in their life too. I think, too, just to kind of piggyback on this morning, one of the things that's so crucial about discipleship is, and we haven't really said it explicitly, explicitly, but in order to make disciples, you have to be a disciple. And so you make like kind. You create like kind. And remember John Wesley said years ago. No, seriously? What? You just have this quote ready. <laughs> <laughs> and did John Wesley really say this? Okay. I... That you s- Come on now. <laughs> I'm not even going to go there because this is being recorded. Come on I'm not going to go there. <laughs> go ahead. Go I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. I'm going to take you out after. But anyway. But anyway. <laughs> Allegedly, John Wesley said. Allegedly. Some guy said. You know what they say. You know what they say. What they say. First time you quote the guy. Second no, you, time you, you say the guy said. The next really? time it's yours. First time and then second time. He had a quote about quotes. What about going about Wesley? I'm, I want to hear what I'm Wesley done. said. I'm done with talking. I want to hear what Wesley said. I want to hear what Wesley, what Wesley said. said. Go ahead. Tell him about the rooster. Now we're all curious. Tell, tell him about the rooster. No, no, no. no Wesley said. <laughs> In, inside jokes play real well on stage. Go, 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 yeah. go. Wesley said, I don't study the Bible to preach. He said, I preach because I've studied the Bible. And so the point is, he, he's talking about out of the overflow. And I th- it's so good we're talking about parents. We talked about this before we came out. None of us are speaking specifically about parents discipling kids. And I think that's the black hole of discipleship today. And it's very difficult. There's a number of reasons why we're not talking about it or people are not talking about it a lot. But the challenge for us as ministers of the gospel is not to walk past the nursery to go disciple men on Wednesday night. And, and, and one of the things I've realized, here's another quote. You're going to love this one. Uh, one of the things, because I, I think this punches, way, I think in pithy statements I'm like I'm believing this. it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. This will be my last time here, so I'm enjoying it. I'm really I, having, a, having a great time. Uh, I'm afraid My first this. and last one. Yeah, I'm having a great time. No, um, I would say, uh, here, here's the thing to think about. We can lose our church. Or we can church our lose. <laughs> Sorry, Robbie. Please come back. <laughs> no, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. That was great. I'm done. <laughs> yeah, Jonathan, you were going to say. Uh, I have control of this panel. 
long time ago. <laughs> yeah, no, can you I don't, no, no, I got to know now. Can you remember what you were going to say? You can lose your church. I know or. exactly what I was saying. Well, please <laughs> say it. Forget Mark. You don't pay attention to him. Nobody else does, so don't pay attention to him. Here, here's the thing, and I, and <laughs> I can't make it non pithy because it's going to be pithy. Okay, here's here's what it is, <clears throat> and this is true though. You can lose your church and keep your family, but if you lose your family, you lose both. And I think, what good is it if our people all go to heaven and our church if our family goes to hell? And so, yeah, I mean, obviously, God saves, God calls. But we at home, me particularly, challenge to create an environment where I'm trying to be intentional. Not only divine opportunities, not only teachable moments, not only organic discipleship. I'm trying to be intentional with my kids. And I'll tell you one way I've been doing that. I used to, read my, I used to wake up early, read my Bible in my office. Why? Because, hey, I want to get alone with God. I don't want any distractions from my kids. But the Lord really convicted me of that. And I thought, you know what? My kids are not seeing Dad read the Bible. So what I did is my wife and I... We wake up in the morning, I'm in a, a, like, a kind of a sunroom, she's in the living room, and I read the Bible. And my kids, ever since they were little, they wake up and they see me reading the Bible. Now, I'm not saying, hey, Rig, it's Romans 1 today, son. You know, I don't do that. But they see. And so when he comes and crawls in daddy's lap, he sees daddy's reading the Bible. He's eight years old. Guess what he wants to do when he wakes up now? He wants to read the Bible. He wants to read the Bible. Why? Because he saw me reading the Bible. And I didn't say, you better read the Bible or you're going to hell. I didn't say any of that. He has watched me and now he wants to do the same. So just being intentional with our families. Any other anecdotes of discipling others through your family? Well, yeah, I mean, just one thing that stands out in my mind in, uh, gosh, 19, no, in 2003. Anyway, when our, when our daughter was 18, um, she um, did something very much like the non-Christian that she is. And it was a pretty radical behavior break in what she had done before. And, you know, when Connie and I ta- found out and talked and prayed about it, we just immediately decided to start sharing it with other people. Uh, because as a senior pastor of the church, people are often going to think that, you know, our family is going to be just like Robbie's family or, you know, when they're little anyway. And uh, we wanted to just quickly just open up and just say, like, this is what's going on. Please pray for us. If you have any ideas, feel free and give us ideas. And in our decision to do that, we established a number of crucial relationships with people in the church who I think had felt they needed to kind of cover up problems in their family. And that was a kind of discipling through our family. Yeah. That's not a fun, happy story, For sure. but is a, a real, honest, and it was helpful to us, uh, you know, being able to talk to people and answer questions and knowing they love us and would, would pray for us and give us counsel. Yeah, that's real life, right? I, I think what occurred to me, Danny, is single men at my dining table, them watching me interact with my girls is discipling them as much as any book I might read with them, right? Women in particular are masters at this. Uh, women would come over, and, I, and Charlotte did the same. Let me start back. We had a family that we were very close to that were ahead of us in terms of married longer than us, not a lot, children before us. We just hung out with them. 
we want, I'm sure they got tired of seeing us come. We didn't think about it because we were young and we didn't know. But we wanted to go watch them. You should watch them do what? I watched how he loved his wife. I watched how Cindy loved Jim. I watched how they cared for their children. And we adopted a lot of what we just picked up from them. And so just life on life again, just in that very normal ebb and flow, we were learning as they were discipling their children how we would someday seek to disciple our own. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think we miss out on that if we try to isolate ourselves from others when we're in those child-rearing years. What a great time to open up your home and let people share the fragrance of what you're learning, both good and bad, mistakes and great things. I can't think of a better way to do a discipleship. Absolutely. My uh, wife is the lead uh, kindergarten teacher for our uh, Sunday school uh, program, and she um, believed that our 16-year-olds, 15-year-old sons at the time, needed to be serving somewhere in a way that didn't directly benefit them. And so she convinced them, um, actually told them that they needed to join her kindergarten Sunday school class, um, and um, they did. And uh, first two weeks were a little uh, awkward when everybody came home. But then after that, it, it, it grew on. And they would tell you that in terms of discipleship and the top five experiences of their lifetime, being in that environment was um, unbelievably formative. And uh, mom became a hero uh, in a new way. In fact, they would say, awesome. Dad, you're pretty good, but you can't hold nothing to what mom does with 80 kids yeah. in a kindergarten classroom. So they were really <laughs> impressed. So, and, and, and the Lord just used it to help them know how to serve and, and pour into the lives of, of, uh, of uh, kindergartners. I want to think a little bit more about this programs versus culture dynamic, but just kind of the transition there. Spiritual gift tests, yay or nay? Spiritual what? Gift tests, yay or nay? No, maybe, no, no. A spiritual gift test, you take a little test. And then, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The camera pan on the face there. You're the maybe. You guys are all no's. Thoughts? Why we just all of a sudden decidedly no? I, I, don't, I don't think the problem is in asking someone to reflect on their own gifts. <clears throat> and I, I, that, those spiritual inventories grew out of, they're kind of a spiritualized version of stuff that was going on in the secular world in the 1970s. But the intention of the people using them and who were creating them was good. It was every member ministry stuff which is great. Uh, I just think there's a, it's like handing a weapon to somebody who may be fairly immature. If you give them a self-understanding that you've now solemnized and certified by having this official looking inventory they've taken and they see now their gift, they're an ESTJ, you know, their gift is this, you know, and this is therefore how God calls them to serve. When actually they're going to find out how God calls them to serve by looking up, looking around, seeing what's needed and trying to do that. It's not by what they want to do or what they understand themselves as their greatest gift. Well, no, you, you can tell how you're going to serve. What the Lord may want you to do is what you perceive right now as your seventh best gift. That may be what he wants you to give your time to, and like your sons with the kindergarten. So I just think those, I don't, I don't think they're inherently evil. I just think they're so often going to be misunderstood by the people who are least able to understand that they're misunderstanding them. So it's just, I just wouldn't, it's just not a good tool to use. Yeah. 
Yeah, so, I, you know, this is where, as a recovering social scientist, I just get my hackles up. Because I think what you're getting in most of those scales is what we would call social desirability responses. Social desire? Social desirability. So what you're getting in a lot of those scales is people answering the way they think they're supposed to answer. Right? And that's I think not, I'm a good teacher. And, and, so and that's gonna... not just the, the sort of folks who don't understand. That's a, that's a problem peculiar to humanity. Right? It's fear of man, it's pride. There's sort of Christian words for that, but in the social science world, it's social desirability. And I just, I just, not to put it too strongly, I just, for me, I know it's worth the paper that it's on. Far better to have people serve and see what the Lord is doing, see how the Lord blesses and makes them fruitful, and the congregation begin to affirm that. And he can give them new gifts to serve. Absolutely. He gives, he gives sovereignly as he wills, doesn't he? And I'm, I'm fairly certain that the sovereignty of God is not measured by a paper, a paper and pencil test. And I just think of what you were saying in the last session, Danny. I think about church as a family versus a corporation. And you have your kids. You're going to ask your kids to do different stuff. And you're going to see where one is strong and where one is weak over time. Nonetheless, we all have to pitch in. Yep. Right. Um, several of you in the... Well, he was a maybe. I don't know if he... We just trashed it. You want to give him a chance to defend it? Did you want to say anything? I'm done for the night. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good call, bro. Yeah, I'm just hanging right now. <laughs> but is the night done with you? <laughs> I need to go back on the front row. I think, yeah. <laughs> Since... Since being in Wake Forest, I've heard two people, I've overheard two people tell you they like your voice. Really? I heard one person do it out there, and I heard him do it. Really? You hear that a lot? <laughs> um, Thank you. Several of you have touched on this whole kind of programs, ah, oh, be careful, culture. Any developed reflections on that? Are cold programs basically good, basically bad, basically neutral? We want a culture. Let's just kind of have it out here for a second. What are we doing? Culture, programs, what? Of discipling. I think uh, programs in general are neutral. There's stuff that the Bible tells us to do. And where there are structures that we can put in place that help us to do that, then that's good. Well, there are structures we put in place to get in the way of us doing that that's bad. So if instead, so if you put something in place for discipleship uh, that instead just fills up people's schedules so they don't build relationships with anybody and there's no real discipling going on, then that's a bad program. But if that program helps people to obey Jesus, but it's not in the Bible, like small groups, it's not in the Bible, but it can help us to obey Jesus, then it can be helpful. I think they're neutral. It just depends on how we use them and if they help us to obey. When, when I went to the first church that I had the privilege of being senior pastor of um, and began just trying to get to know people and asking them about their spiritual life, um, there were a couple things that were immediately obvious to me. One is that the vast majority had never really been asked about their spiritual life. I'd ask a question, they would fumble and stumble, and almost to a person, they would say, that's a hard question. I, I, you know, I just no category for the conversation. And then I would ask them to just sort of talk about, you know, the church over the years and things of that sort. And, and the lion's share of people would talk about what they felt were sort of increases in their spiritual life pegged to a program. When we did this study, oh, I was really, you know, 
and we haven't done a study in a while, so I'm kind of, eh. So the other sort of telltale sign to me is that people began to sort of hitch the sort of quality of their spiritual life to whether or not there's a program there. If there's a kind of dependency yeah. that's fostered, yeah. I, I think you're undermining what is meant to be a sort of normal walk with Christ in, in the Christian life. And when people gauge whether or not they are um, faithfully serving at church by whether or not they've checked their name by a particular official ministry as opposed to whether or not they're actually helping to make disciples. Yeah. Our challenge right now is that we're trying to figure out how do we take all of these various programs that were sort of formed in various ministry silos and how are they linked together for a discipleship culture and which ones work to accomplish that, which ones don't, and um, how are we trying to change all of them so that they're more disciple-making in their essence. And um, we have just, we didn't start with a discipleship culture first. We started with programs and silos, and now we're trying to reverse engineer it. And it is very complicated and very politically loaded because silos programs have deep commitments and um, so, um, yeah, so we're trying to do both and to do it um, patiently and wisely. But it is, um, it, is, uh, it is one of the most challenging things that we've tried to... to challenging play. because you feel like maybe you'd like to kill some of these programs, but people are sentimentally attached to them? Well, it's not that we want to kill them. It's just we don't understand how they... Nobody understands. We don't fully understand how they all relate to one another for an overall vision of discipleship. Yeah. So we have a women's Bible study, but we don't know how that fits, and they may not know how it fits into a discipleship um, matrix or, or, or what's happening, or a men's ministry, or a karate <coughs> ministry, literally, or uh, you know, s- some other thing. And they're all, they, 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 we just sort of like it's been this program magnet and sort of like an open hand. Yeah, it's a great idea. You got building space, go for it. And suddenly now you have all these things. And so it's, um, and, and how to get a thread through it. So some of them probably aren't, maybe as a, they're certainly not as effective as others. We're not necessarily wanting to kill them. But even the conversation is challenging because they all need to change at some level. So that's, that's just a, it's just complicated. So my word is, if you don't have a bunch of programs and you can figure out what you're supposed to build the culture first and not that the programs follow the culture because to do it the other way is like an internal blood transfusion. It's just, it, um, that's not even a good analogy. Hold on a second. Robbie. Come on, what? Mark, I liked your image of, of David. We're talking about killing, we're talking farmer. about blood transfusions. Yeah. Like, it's not going well. It's like trying to teach a rooster a new crow. We'll yeah, say exactly. That. Yeah, please okay. don't go there. Okay. This is an inside <laughs> joke. But I will say this one more thing. I will say that I think you're right. I think what helps us create a disciple making culture, because I think what you're getting at, where we need to create a culture of discipleship, and we know language changes culture. What, and somebody, I think, said this already. What you celebrate is what your people are going to celebrate. So if you're consistently cel- – like when I was a new pastor at Brainerd, it was like the first or second week there. I got up on one Sunday and I said, hey, let's give the Lord a hand. We had X amount of people in worship. Well, I was immature. I didn't know. But what I was doing is programming them to expect that to be success. Mm-hmm. And then when we hit the budget – I'd say, let, look at the back of your bulletin. We hit the budget. Let's, and I'd even say, let's give the Lord a hand. Obviously, we knew it was the Lord doing it. But what I was doing is programming them 
to gate success. And so one Sunday, I never forget, I was about to go up and preach one of those senior saints in our, our church, those precious souls for whom Christ died. You know, those guys, so we go, those precious souls, more precious than souls. But anyway, uh, he said to me, he said, uh, pastor, did you see the budget? Now I'm about to go preach. And he leans over. He said, did you see the budget? I said, no, I didn't. He said, we, we didn't hit the budget. And it was like the whole ministry, the whole, all the wheels came off the ministry. And, and, and I, was, I was upset with him. I had to check myself before I responded. But then I thought, I taught him to do that because I was celebrating that. So what we celebrate is what they celebrate. And here's what else I thought. We got to figure out what kind of disciple we want to create. You know, just let's make disciples. We're a disciple-making church. You can't just put that on the lanyard and expect to be a disciple-making church. What is that? Right? Is that a faithful follower of Christ? Is that someone who can apologetically defend their faith? Is that someone who's walking with the Lord? And I think if you have the, the what, the what determines the why and the how. And um, yeah, so those are the hard things. We did four things. I'll tell you four things we did practically. We implemented the KISS technique. Okay? Uh, not, not keep it simple somehow, which we say in the, in the Christian church. But keep, yeah, it, right. you ever said that before? You say it some other way. But anyway. You say it another way. We're on live stream. Uh, here's what we did. We decided what kind of disciple, wh- what are we trying to create? And then we asked ourselves the question, do these ministries help us do that? One, if it does, we keep it. You know, if it's, if it's a ministry, help. I is we increase it. If it's helping us and it's really helping parasitic kids, we increase it. The S is if, it's, if there's a deficit, we start it. But here's the hard one. We stop it. And that's where the pain, as you're experiencing, that's where the pain is. It's, it's, it's good ministry, but it's not accomplishing the best ministry, which is to help parents and people be disciples who make disciples. So, practically. You two both had a look. I wanted to say something. I, this is just a real quick observation. I mean, part of what I'm taking from you all's comments uh, is it's just helpful to recognize that your programs actually produce culture. Right. And so you, you create expectations, you create values, you create measurements. Yeah. All of that's culture. Um, and so it's not like you're sort of pulling something off the shelf and playing it for 12 weeks and then it's kind of gone. No, actually, you're forming the ways of being of your people. Uh, and so to be careful about that. Which goes back to your point earlier. So, for instance, I remember showing up as an interim at one church and they said, you know, four years ago we did purpose driven 40 days of purpose. We'd love you to lead us again in 48 days of purpose because, man, it was like revival here. Could you do that again? And they were waiting for... 40 days of that, purpose. And that was the culture, right? That's right in line with what I, what I was going to say. One of the dangers of overprogramming is people won't know how to be Christians without you setting it up for them. It's like, well, how do I connect with somebody? Well, how are we going to share the gospel with people? Yeah, you should go to somebody and tell them about Jesus, you know. And it, we just get in this thing where you never do anything in obedience to Jesus unless we set it up for you and invite you to it at a particular time. So people never know how to initiate and just obey Jesus in this situation. And when we overprogram in that way, we teach people, don't do it unless we set it up for you. And we want the opposite. We want to keep finding out about ways you're telling people about Jesus and people you're discipling. Yeah, yeah man, that, that's so good, Tripp. Uh, because the, the programs can de-skill when really what you're trying to do in the ministry is transfer yeah. knowledge, skill, and ability to live for Christ. That's so good. Man. And I'd love to think of some programs as training wheels that kind of get you into it, let you figure out how to do it so that you don't need this in order to do it. You can do it without it eventually. 
we're, we're basically out of time, but there's just one little last area I want to touch on before we, we stop. How mature do you have to be before you encourage people to disciple? How, encourage, how mature does a Christian have to be? Well, there's a sense in which, in fact, this was asked to me earlier on the breaks. You don't have to be super mature. You just have to be more mature than the person that you're discipling. Now, don't hear me trying to dumb it down. But if I have been taught, for example, as a new believer to share my faith, I can disciple a new believer to teach them to share their faith. I can teach them what I have learned. I may not be way down the line, but I can take someone who's trailing me, so to speak, and bring them to that level. Of course, I can't be content to stop there. But if you are more mature in a particular area than another person, you can at least work in their lives if God brings them across your path to bring them to that. I think you can do that. Why? I think you have to wait. Well, you can't disciple until you've been three years into this. No. Why, why, why? I don't know how you would defend that biblically. Yeah, I, I think I would answer it even a little differently than that. I think, you know, like one, Josh is a dear brother here from our church, and, you know, I've been a Christian longer than he's been alive. Uh, and Josh it, it can come to me and talk to me and have questions or you know, confess sin. And so I think the appearance, according to the way we've been talking this conference, is that I am discipling Josh. And there's a sense in which that's true. But I can tell you I'm being discipled by him. As I watch him struggle with his sin against it, as I watch him struggle against his desire to be private and instead tell others and send out an email telling people, I mean, I, I get that little email and I am instructed. You know, I am, I am reminded and challenged in what I need to do uh, when he comes and, and asks forgiveness or tells me he loves me, I mean, just a thousand little ways like that, he, this brother who's much younger than I am is discipling me. Yeah. So I, and, and that's one of my concerns with programs, you know, that, that are structured, lest anybody think that you have to have a certain certification and a structure to do that. No. Now, I don't think, I don't think any of the, the good programs are going to say that, uh, and the good programs are just going to be a partial you know, aspect of discipling. <clears throat> but I think the basic organic culture in our church needs to be that kind of humble learning from each other so that there's, there's never a question of any Christian being too young to disciple. It's just have we taught them to and are they willing to? Amen. Mark, would you even encourage two people with the same sin struggle? Depends depending on, what on the sin. Depends on, depends the sin. on what the sin is. Sure. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Right. Uh, I would say too... In, in, in the message trip preach, which is so helpful, in, in that section of 11, 12, 13, which is really impactful, you have the mentors equipping the saints to do ministry, and then you have, through ministry, maturity. And here's the thing that people miss, is that we always say, and this is exactly what you're saying, we always read it 11, 13, 12. And what we say is, the mentors wait for a person to be mature enough, and then when you're mature enough, then you can do ministry. Just keep coming to church or keep taking more classes. When you get a sheepskin on the wall, when you have a degree behind, then you're ready. No offense, I've got, I've got those things, but you know what I'm saying. Then you'll be ready to do ministry. Here's what Paul shows us. 11, 12, 13 is you, ministry is the pathway to maturity. 
And I think we miss that. So what he's saying is when you equip the saints to do the work of ministry, they will become mature and it will build up the church. And so ministry is the pathway. And there's some things that you will never learn in the Christian life separate and apart from doing the work of ministry, whether that's stumbling and falling and sharing the gospel, whether it's struggling with sin and confessing to a brother. I think those are the things we miss because we think we have to be super spiritual before we can do anything. Yeah. And I I was going to say if, uh, so much of it is modeling, but so much of it is just what he's talking about in chapter four, speaking the truth in love. And if God's word is the power to change hearts, then a brand new Christian who's just understanding something can speak the truth in love to any Christian. And all of us have to have the kind of posture of learners. Even when I'm meeting with somebody who's a brand new Christian, I want my heart to be such that I can learn something from you. I can learn from anybody indwell with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God lives in this person, so of course I can learn from him. And what we'll end up doing is, like you're saying, teaching people don't obey Jesus until you've been a Christian for two years. Don't speak the truth in love. Don't try to help anybody follow Jesus. Wait until you hit year two. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to encourage people to jump the gun, and, you know, but we, we want people to speak the truth in love immediately. Immediately obey Jesus in that way. Ephesians four twenty five a little bit after your passage. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. All of you speak to each other. We're all members, right? There's, there's at times, I mean, I started by asking the question, how many, how many, how many, how many? There's sometimes I feel like I'm not discipling anybody I'm just putting in my two cents with these half a dozen guys, because it's really the church, each of these different people from different angles, discipling these individuals, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm playing my part, you know, in, in the larger church project of, of these individuals. I think we're out of time. Any last comments one of you just dying to make about something that's been said today that I haven't asked about? Anything at all, Trip? You can say no. Just something burning inside of you. Well, just related to what you just said in just one sentence. Uh, when we turn, maybe more than one sentence, when we uh, make it too much about I'm just me, just discipling this one person, one, we cut them off from the rest of the church that can bless them, and we put way too much pressure on ourselves to be the lone sanctifier of this person. It's incredible yeah. when there's a guy that I've been meeting with, and he comes with the insights he's gotten from other people. I'm just not godly enough to be the sole sanctifier of somebody. Good word. Anything else? I would just say the key to Jesus' discipleship ministry was intentionality. I had a pastor tell me one time, well, we don't really know. We're not as intentional as you are. We leave discipleship to chance. I said, that's interesting. Jesus never did. He was very intentional with the guys he selected and what he taught them. So, Mark, Thabiti. Just these guys hit it there a moment ago. Just was feeling it, want to underline it. Ephesians 4, 11, 12, 13. The work of the ministry there is the speaking to each other, truth and love, and not to confuse the work of the ministry with a lot of other kind of tasks. And most fundamentally, the way God does his work in our lives is through the speaking of his word to each other. And I'm kind of convicted hearing Mark earlier and others uh, actually to be even to try to be even more simple in my reliance upon the scripture and just reading the Bible together thinking through the Bible together, and thinking through very explicitly, how do we obey the Bible? Danny, anything else? Mark? Robbie, will you close us in prayer? Thank God. Uh, Let's pray. (laughs) 
<laughs> Father, we thank you for the great salvation that we have in Christ. And we thank you for the mystery of the gospel, which is Christ living within us. And God, we thank you we can laugh and learn and sharpen one another. And although we come from different backgrounds, different testimonies, different experiences, we, as Tripp said, serve one God, one Lord, one baptism, one faith family. And God, we're grateful that uh, we have been sharpened. We feel like we're drinking from a fire hose at times, our fire hydrant at times, and yet uh, you do the work long after we're gone. And we pray, God, that this just wouldn't be an intellectual ascent of information, but that we would take a few key insights we learned and apply them to our life, and that you would help us to build gospel-centered, healthy churches. For your glory and for your namesake, we pray it in the only name we know how, and that's the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said... Amen. Amen.